Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. Call or text Carl now at 512-836-0590. Now, here's Carl. Good afternoon and welcome to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. Now in our 29th or coming up on our 29th anniversary, this is Money Talk. I always get the math mixed up. That's why today I'm broadcasting with the man who knows everything, Kenneth Rahmeyer. He's there in the <laughs> studio. <laughs> I'm I'll do Iowa the best City, I can to help you there, Carl. <laughs> Thank you. I'm in Iowa City, Iowa, getting ready to go to the Iowa-Michigan State football game. It's been a long time since Kenny and I have had the chance to have some fun together on the air. Money Talk is a broadcast about the world of financial and investment planning, where you always determine the agenda by calling or texting 512-836-0590. Also, you may listen online right now at 512-836-newsradio-klbj.com. I'll get that right. And also this Thursday after the news at 6, we will rebroadcast today's show, and you may also download on SoundCloud the uh, app. You can download all of our previous broadcasts. It's always a great idea to call at the beginning of the hour. When Kenny and I have ample time to do our best to answer your questions. I take today's calls first, then today's text, and finally any previous text that I have not had the opportunity to fully answer. 512-836-0590. Kenneth, you're on the air. How may I? Oh, thank you for taking my call, Carl. Uh, I am retired, and I am interested in your comments on managed futures and covered calls. A little bit about what exactly they are and what percent should they occupy in, in my asset allocation. Okay, Kenneth, thank you for calling. And so we just lost Carl as you got started. If you'll hold on for just a moment, we are reestablishing contact with him, and we will make sure that you have a chance to ask your question about managed futures and covered calls and uh, what percent. Yes, sir, Carl. I understand understand I'm back at the call dropped, and I understand that Kenneth is on the air. So let me talk with you, with him. Kenneth, you're on the air. How may I help? Carl, stand by, because we got you, but now we've lost Kenneth. Not sure if he dropped Ah. off, but I've got the essence of his question, and I believe I can convey that to you, and then you can respond, please. Okay, great. He wanted specifically to know a little bit of information about managed futures and covered calls and what, if any, percentage might uh, that have in someone's uh, asset allocations. Great. Terrific. Well, I'm glad you had such a good memory, Kenny. That's a very interesting, detailed, and frankly sophisticated question. Let me take managed futures first, because I suspect Kenneth is a regular listener, because I doubt that there are many radio broadcasts that talk about managed futures. The whole concept, and Kenny, you and I are from the Midwest, and we're, we're from farm folks, I bet, in your family, and certainly in mine. And the idea that my grandfather, George Clayton Bowles, could plant soybeans in Rawls County, Missouri, and if he wanted to sell that, con- sell that crop before it was harvested, he knew he locked in the price, and he knew what he was going to get. And on the other hand, maybe General Mills wanted to know that they had a locked-in price for soybeans, and so they would buy 
my grandfather's promise through a futures contract to deliver so many bushels of product. That started, that's the futures market. But what's transpired over the years, particularly with the advent of computing capacity, is the ability for people to trade the four most liquid asset classes in the world. Commodities, as I just mentioned, currencies, interest rates, and stock indexes. And what is this goes back several years, and it just gets more and more sophisticated. The concept is it's called trend following, meaning that if a trend is moving upward, and we may talk about oil later, let's just say that uh, oil, then they can actually own futures that go up with the price of oil. But here's the really interesting part. Let's take 19, let's take last year. Last year was a bad year for stocks and a bad year for bonds. The S&P 500 was down 18%, the NASDAQ down 33%. It was a bad year for bonds. So-called Bloomberg Ag was down 13%. Managed futures were up anywhere from 15 to 20%. How could that happen? Because the downward trend was substantial and long-lasting, and as a consequence of that, they could benefit from the decline. So to answer the last part of the question, if you choose to do this, it's available in 40 Act mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. You can do your homework or you can talk to your advisor, and you can put them in your portfolio. Over long periods of time, the data indicate what you will do is it will slow or, de- or ameliorate the declines in bad times. So I take it as it's a bit like homeowner's insurance. I don't want to have... Um, hail damage at my house, which people recently in in central Texas have had. But I'm going to pay my premiums every year because I don't know when I'm going to need it. And last year, the hail damage protection was managed futures in the financial markets. So you want to put some of that, if you like this, as part of your asset allocation, because it does not correlate positively with stocks or with bonds. So a modest allocation of that might be reasonable, something between 08 to 10%. Let's talk about covered calls, a completely different strategy, also a very old strategy with a long track record. Carl, I'm sorry to interrupt. Before you do that, Kenneth is back on the line, so I'm going to bring him in with you at this point. Hopefully he's heard most of what you've said, and I thought yeah. I'd bring him okay. in for the last part here, okay? That'd be, that'd be terrific. Kenneth, I understand you're on the line now. Is that correct? Yes, thank you. Good. So did you hear my answer on managed futures, Kenneth? About half of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's good. That's all right. It's complicated, so I'm happy to talk about it because I think it's a really interesting concept. The idea is that with the aid of computing technology, you can. there are managers who will own futures contracts that can either benefit from a sustained decline in an asset class like stocks last year and bonds last year or a sustained move upward. That's why I like it, because if you own stocks, the way you make money is they go up. If you own bonds, the way you make money is you you have the interest in a declining interest rate environment. Your bonds appreciate. None of that is the same with managed futures, because they can trade the four global asset classes of stocks, currencies, which would be interest rates or bonds, uh, and commodities. 
So it's a lot, it's a, it's a homeowner's insurance policy for bad times like last year. During the global financial crisis in 2008, a broad index of trend-following strategies was up about 17% when U.S. stocks were down 40%, commodities were down sharply. So I think it's a reasonable thing to have in a portfolio. I like it personally, but you have to be a patient person because it tends to only pay off periodically. I mean, you obviously do not know when that's going to happen. So an allocation of that 8, 9, 10% is, in my view, a reasonable thing to do. Covered calls are a very different strategy. Covered calls uh, work like this. You can do this yourself or you can get into a fund that does this. The concept is you, you own a stock and then you sell somebody the right to buy the stock away from you at a predetermined price. So I'm just going to make up an example. Let's suppose that the price of Procter & Gamble is $43 a share and you own it. You can sell a future, not futures, you can sell an option contract to let somebody buy it from you at $45 a share between now and the end of the year. So they pay you for that. So that puts money in your pocket along with the dividend from the Procter & Gamble. Now, one of three things is going to happen between now and the end of the year. Procter & Gamble is going to stay flat in which case you just pocket the premium and you still own the stock. Procter & Gamble is going to decline. Well, at least you have some cushion because you have the option premium. Or Procter & Gamble is going to appreciate, and let's suppose it goes from 43 to $47 a share, then that other side of that party to the transaction will exercise the option. You'll get your $45. They'll be able to get the stock at 45 when it's trading at 47 so it is considered among option trading to be a conservative strategy. Frankly, my experience is I'm not a big fan of it because the stock market typically has unforeseen violent moves, both up and down, and I'm willing to live with that volatility and not give away the upside and get my income from bonds or from other strategies but I'm not a big fan of covered calls, but it's a conservative strategy. There's nothing with, wrong with it conceptually whatsoever, so I hope that's helpful. Thank you. Okay, you bet. Thanks for calling. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Kenny and I are here. It's about time for us to take a break. Call or text 512-836-0590. We'll be right back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. I'm broadcasting this afternoon from Iowa City. My friend Kenny Rommeyer's there in the studio. And when you have a question, call or text 512. 512- 836-0590. Last week, I uh, gave some advice, and it was mistaken. Our regular listener, Ken, uh, we had a kind of a pretty technical question. The person said, I have a 457 plan uh, at work. Presumably, the uh, individual's retired, and I'd like to take the 457 plan assets and put it in uh, a Roth IRA, I believe that was. And so... Uh, the person wanted to know how to do that. And then I think there was another one that someone, and I answered that, and now that I look at my notes, I think it was about a beneficiary Roth. That's exactly it. So a person had received a Roth as a beneficiary and wanted to know if he or she 
if they qualified to put money in a Roth in terms of their income, uh, if they could put new contributions into a beneficiary Roth. And Ken emailed me and said that he was mistaken. They could. So I just wanted to clarify that. Call or text 512-836-0590. Kenny? Carl, I see uh, a text that came in. Are you seeing that? Let me see. I see one. Is this the one that uh, starts? Let's see. This was back. I had to go through, as you know, to the bottom of the uh, boxy to see this. Is this the one that says, my wife and I have self-managed and fiduciary accounts? Yes, sir. This is, okay. Carl, my wife and I have self-managed and fiduciary managed traditional and Roth IRAs. In addition to a traditional and Roth 401ks that our current employer still currently working, the self-managed traditional IRAs have contributions that were put in after tax due to the income limit restrictions that disallow direct Roth contributions. The fiduciary managed IRAs do not have after tax contributions. When we do incremental Roth conversions, we are penalized by the prorater rule. Can we mitigate this penalty by rolling my fiduciary managed traditional IRAs into our traditional 401ks to reduce our overall IRA balances? And if this is true, isn't the responsibility of my advisor to inform me of this tax strategy? I would tell you it would depend on, I'm going to answer the end of your question first. I think it depends on the scope of services. This is a really technical thing, and uh, if your advisor uh, says something like, uh, we provide comprehensive financial uh, management, comprehensive financial planning, which includes tax sensitivity planning, then should you have learned about this? The answer is probably yes, but a lot of advisors who are fiduciaries don't do that. Uh, They may be primarily investment management. Uh, And if that's the case, uh, then I'm thinking of one that you hear advertised all the time, but I'm not going to say the name and give them free advertising. And they manage portfolios, separately managed accounts. And they would, I would not anticipate that they would do this. I think the fiduciary standard, as I understand it, has several components to it. One is to put your interest before the interests of the advisor, and secondly, to receive no transaction-based compensation. And thirdly, to abide by what the law calls a duty of care. I don't see, ta- I don't see sophisticated tax planning in that. So I think it really depends on the scope of services. That they, and that would probably be in what's called the IAA, the Investment Advisory Agreement, that you signed when you engaged this person. Uh, you can certainly ask for that. Also, there's a form called the ADV, Alpha Delta Velvet ADV, that your fiduciary files with the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. That's a matter of public record. You can look at that as well. And it also des- describes the scope of services. And if tax uh, sensitivity and tax planning is not in there, then I suspect is not, uh, you know, that there's not a case to be made this year. He would have provided that for you. I got to tell you, taking the money from the fiduciary IRA and putting or putting uh, your traditional fiduciary managed traditional IRAs into your traditional 401k 
uh, is that a plausible thing to do as long as you're still working? The answer, and you say you are, the answer to that is yes. Will that reduce the overall IRA balances? Uh, it will. Will it change the prorater rule? I'm not going to say <laughs> because we're on the air and I haven't had a chance to do any homework. That's sensitive enough and it's a big enough deal that if I were in your shoes, I would absolutely want to talk to a CPA about that who really is an expert in taxes. But thanks for the thanks for the opportunity to talk about that. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text five one two. Eight three six zero five ninety. Kenny. Well, Carl Oil has been in the news as of late. Let me just give you a few data points here. Uh, a barrel of crude oil has hit the twenty twenty three high of ninety three dollars. So it's up thirty percent since mid June. A couple of opinions on oil from Goldman Sachs. They said this week ninety dollar barrel oil is unlikely to derail the economy and or consumer spending. And then the Chevron CEO said on CNBC a few days ago he could see $100 barrel of oil. And uh, I wanted to throw that out there and just get your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, I mean, oil is critically important to all of us, and certainly here in Texas, and to the global economy. So let's start at the beginning. One of the factors that's contributing to this uh, is that the uh, Saudis have intentionally reduced production. Uh, and historically, uh, their behavior is, from their point of view, quite rational. If they want a certain level of oil, they will reduce overall production. On the other side, they've learned that if they let the price of oil get too high, that then more capacity or more supply, I beg your pardon, will come into the marketplace. And so... A lot of smart people that followed this suggest that around $80 is probably where Saudi Arabia wants to be, and that should oil go to $100, it's, impl- it's certainly likely that the Saudis would increase production so as to bring prices down. There's another interesting factor going on here, and it was a story in today's Wall Street Journal. A number of companies which have reserves through fracking uh, are not producing uh, or not exploring the number of wells in the Permian Basin in West Texas and New Mexico, the number of drilling wells, drillers putting in new wells has actually declined. Uh, And uh, they were talking about, uh, for example, at ExxonMobil, and that the, the word to the public companies is pay more dividends, have more stock buybacks. And so what you're not seeing In spite of the increase in the price of oil, what you're not seeing is a significant increase in drilling activity in the United States. So about how it affects the economy, that's very interesting. And, of course, I'm not an economist. But I think what we've learned is that while most of us figure we don't have an opportunity, we don't have any choice, we have to put gasoline in our vehicles to get to work or whatever. As prices rise, consumers do make choices. They travel less. For example, there's some softness now I read in the air, in the air, commercial airline business. Uh, and so, yes, it's a significant factor. And because the economy is strong, and this gets to the last point, uh, economists believe that everybody in America who wants a job has a job. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, employers are going to have the opportunity because there's sufficient demand out there 
for goods and services that if you say run a trucking company and and oil fuel is a major component of your operating expenses business is so robust that you will be able to pass that through so I think that's what the person or or groups why they could say that higher oil would not derail the economy. My personal view is I think high interest rates, if they're high long enough, has a much bigger impact on the economy than just oil alone. Thanks, Kenny. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Kenny? Carl, since you mentioned interest rates, a few data points in the news about that as well. First, the 10-year Treasury bond yield highest in 15 years. Fortune magazine reported mortgage rates are at their highest in 22 years. CNBC reported there's a trillion dollars of credit card debt out there these days, the highest level ever. And the Wall Street Journal reported the average interest charge on credit cards, almost 21%. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And by the way, I see we just got in a text, but it's already 28 minutes after the hour. So I think we'll tackle that when we come back after the break. Uh, This is a huge deal. Uh, Interest, uh, you don't really appreciate the impact of interest rates. When interest rates are so low, and they've been so low for so long, that Companies have been able to borrow. Consumers have been able to borrow. And economists would say uh, consumption was brought forward from the future to now because people can borrow money and go out and spend it. I do see it's 29 after the hour. Uh, so this is live tele- live. <laughs> it's not live TV, Kenny, as good-looking as you are. I'm sorry. Uh, this is live uh, radio. But we're going to be back after the news, and we'll discuss interest rates and also your text. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. I'm broadcasting this afternoon from Iowa City. Kenny is there in the studio. And when you have a question, call or text 512. 512- Eight three six zero five ninety. Also, you may listen to the show right now at newsradioklbj.com, where you can go there at your convenience and download podcasts from previous months, days, and years. And you can also go to SoundCloud and do the same thing. And then this Thursday after the news at 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show. I want to get to the text. I take today's calls first, today's text. And then Kenny and I will bloviate together. Is that right, Kenny? Absolutely. I'm going to follow your lead on that, as always. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here, I'm getting some really interesting and sophisticated texts today. Here's one. Always enjoy listening to your great show, Carl. Well, thank you. Given I have invested in trend following for years, I understand your comments about how they fit in portfolio construction. And they're episodic returns. That's a great term. They are episodic. You're right. I also invest in global macro. Do you have any thoughts about global macro? Well, so some of the some uh, famous hedge funds, I think it's Ray Dalio who runs Bridgewater, and there's a, a fellow uh, who's in the news today who make uh, bets, and I don't mean that in a negative phrase, that way or pejorative. They look at 
the globe. That's why the name. And they look at large factors, themes, if you will, inflation, interest rates, energy prices, currencies, all of that together. And then they say, given our views on the world, uh, here's what we think is likely to happen going forward. And if that comes to pass, it will have this impact. So if we think that the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates more from here, then we're going to want to we're going to want to take advantage of that by being short uh, bonds, or it may be something associated with geopolitics and who are the winners and losers in the competition between China and the United States. Maybe the answer is Mexico. Maybe the answer is Vietnam. So that it's a fascinating approach to investing. Uh, I, I personally haven't done it, so I don't have an informed opinion. I will tell you, and this is the the wonderful thing and the and the if you will frustrating thing about portfolio management. Whether you do it yourself, as this person appears to, or you have an advisor. So if you decide you like uh, managed futures, where's the money come from? If you decide you like global macro, where's that money going to come from? And I am going to take a moment here, and this is something when Kenny and I, one of these days, do an evergreen show, I'll spend more time on it. But when you think about your portfolio and you ask your, it doesn't matter whether it's your 401k IRA, your joint account, your personal account, you should stop and say, what is it I'm trying to accomplish? And the superficial answer is make money. Of course it is. You're not trying to lose money. But the question is, if I want the money to grow over time, then what level of risk am I willing to take? Because if I want it to grow over time and I'm completely risk averse, then I want to be in the highest returning asset classes, right? And I'm willing to take the downside risk. So I want to be in all equities, all stocks. I don't want to be, I don't want to in any way hedge against that. I don't want bonds. I don't want managed futures. I don't want global macro. And frankly, I'm probably going to want to be more in the NASDAQ than the S&P 500 or the Dow Industrials because it has the greatest volatility and the greatest possibility for return. However, is, is that how a pension fund invests or an endowment invests? The answer is absolutely not because they look at the kinds of losses you can take, what the pros call drawdowns, like the global financial crisis, or even last year, and they say that's not acceptable to us to our shareholders or our pension beneficiaries. And so they build what are called diversified or balanced or non-correlating portfolios. That's key because if you start, let's say, with the benchmark 60% stocks and 40% bonds, and let's just be simple and use the S&P 500 for 60% and the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index for 40%, and now you want to add global macro. The way I think about it is, what are the characteristics? What does the pattern of return look like in global macro? Does it look more like a bond or does it look more like a stock? Let's presume because they're making bets on global macro events that it looks more like stocks. Then that money needs to come from your stock allocation. So if you're thinking about, well, what about event-driven strategies like merger arbitrage? Does that look more like, does that perform more like bonds? Or does it perform more like stocks? Performs more like bonds. So you're going to reduce your 40% by the amount that you want to put in that strategy. So I think that's the best way to approach it, realizing that with every switch from one 
strategy to another is going to have, over time, a, a total impact. It's either going to increase volatility or decrease volatility. It's going to have stock-like returns or bond-like returns, and that's how I would think about it. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Kenny, we... Key that question up again about interest rates, would you please, because we didn't have enough time. Absolutely, and I just gave you a, a few quick data points here. The 10-year Treasury yield, the highest in 15 years. Fortune reports mortgage rates, the highest in 22 years. CNBC reported there's a trillion dollars of credit card debt out there that's the highest level ever. And Wall Street Journal reported the average interest rate charge on credit cards these days, almost 21%. That's the average. Wow. Well, as I started to say before the break, really high interest rates are not within the memory of a lot of investors. Uh, I'm old enough to remember that when I got my first mortgage in Austin, Texas, I got a nine and seven eighths mortgage. I thought I was a real winner because in short order, mortgage rates went above 10%. We have lived in a period of declining and very low interest rates. It has allowed people to make decisions. It's allowed people to borrow money. It's certainly encouraged banks to loan money. And we've made investments in our businesses or we've increased our consumption. Some economists would say we brought forward future consumption into the present because money was eventually, was, you know, essentially free. And because we had cheap money and we had low inflation, what it did for our purchasing power was give us a real boost, a real tailwind to purchasing power. Now we're on the other side of this. And a lot of us have never experienced this. And we look at 7% mortgages and 4.5% 10-year treasuries, and we go, oh, my goodness, this is just terrible. Well, it's only terrible compared to where we've been in the last few years. Over the scope of time, it's not so terrible at all. It's actually much more normalized. When interest rates were so low and the 10-year Treasury was 1.25%, that was the anomaly. That was the unusual one. So I think what we're going to have is a period of time where consumers, you and I, are going to have to adjust our behavior. And it may not be, not, it will not be a pleasant circumstance we'll realize that we can't afford the same vehicle because the monthly payments are too high because of interest. We'll realize that our MasterCard bill or Visa or whatever, we're paying 20%. We've got to pay, we've got to make bigger monthly payments. So we're going to have to adjust our behavior. Now the federal reserve hopes we'll adjust our behavior by consuming less and putting less upward pressure on prices because that causes inflation. So this is, I can't overstate what a big issue this is. And of course, I can't predict where it's going to go. As we were talking about earlier in the broadcast, so far, rising interest rates have had small effects in some worlds, larger in others. And one of those, of course, as you would be, would be residential real estate. So the supply of homes for sale uh, are below average because people have a 3% mortgage. They're not excited about selling their house and going into a 7% mortgage. So home builders are skeptical and they're not going to, they're not going to build as much. You have 
other kinds of factors as well. It's my understanding that commercial real estate loans for office buildings, for example, typically have five-year terms, and every five years, they borrow the money again. Well, what's happening in some places, like San Francisco and Manhattan, based on what I've read, is those notes are coming due, and the money was borrowed at a very low rate five years ago. Now, with work from home, you have lower lower usage of your uh, office building at the same time that you have double the interest cost that you had before. And you're starting to see uh, companies, uh, landlords, just kind of, not kind of, walk away from buildings. So it's really complicated, uh, but interest rates really matter. Now, we all know what the upside is because we've talked about this. I'm being here I am Debbie Downer. We also know what the upside is because we've talked about this in previous weeks. Savers, I make the distinction of savers between savers and investors. Savers, people who are interested in keeping the nominal value of their money flat. They don't want to see it go down. And they have been punished with low interest rates. But I remember looking at, I had some money in a checking account at one moment. It was paying 0.01%, really. <laughs> and now you can get you can get a money market fund, a government money market fund, with an uh, excess of 5%. So if you have money uh, and savings, uh, this is as good as it's been for a heck of a long time. So rising rates uh, are a two-edged sword. But to the, to the typical American consumer who doesn't have a lot of savings, if any, Rising rates is going to be a headwind, and we're going to have to go through a period of adjustment. And that'll show up in the political scene as well. It may well be why the administration gets low marks for the economy, in spite of the fact that everybody who wants a job can get one. People are unhappy with inflation and also with higher interest rates. Great question. All right. We're going to take our break. I hope you're enjoying the broadcast. I always enjoy doing this with my friend Kenny. But we do have another quarter hour together. We do not have anybody on the line nor any new incoming texts. So give us a call or text us at 512-836-0590. We'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here for another 13, 14 minutes. My friend Kenny Rahmeyer's there in the studio. I'm here in Iowa City. If you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Kenny? Carl, just before the weekend, the Federal Reserve's preferred gauge on inflation, which is the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, released the data for the month of August. And the data came in this way, uh, excluding food and energy costs. The the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index was up 0.1%, less than the expected 0.2%. For 12 months, it was up 3.9% as expected. And then consumer spending was up 0.4%, down from 0.9% in July. Yep. So the reason I always, people always say, well, why do they exclude food and energy? All of us have to eat and all of us have to heat our homes or air condition our apartments or drive someplace. 
And the reason that they do this is because of it's so it can swing so much and it can be so volatile. And the argument why the Fed prefers the PCE that you described versus the consumer price index, the CPI, uh, is that uh, they're trying to really understand what the heck is going on with everything else in the economy. Some people don't like the CPI because it has a big component of what's called rent rent equivalent uh, housing costs. But the PCE is the one that they look at. And uh, there's actually some reasonably good news here uh, because the Fed target, and they've been very clear about this, is 2% inflation. And back in the day, and, I, and we have some older listeners like Kenny and Carl who remember when Alan Greenspan <laughs> was yes, when Alan Greenspan, your friend, was chair of the Federal Reserve, and he's mandated, or the chair of the Federal Reserve is mandated to go to the House of Representatives and the Senate twice a year and report in on what's going on and what their policy is. And Greenspan would go up and he would testify. And then he would leave and all the people in the room would look at each other and say, what did he, what was that? What did he say? And nobody understood. Yeah. He took great pleasure in doing that. I actually had, was in a small group with him and he smiled and, and said that was the case because he wanted to keep all of his options open. He didn't want to signal to the bond market uh, that he, what he was going to do. He just would say, we're going to, we're going to, let, we're going to, as, as now Powell says, we'll let the data tell us. Well, then, uh, we had the global financial crisis and secretary, I beg your pardon, Fed chairman Ben Bernanke said, we're going to set targets. We're going to be, we're going to, we're going to let people, we're not going to let people have to guess any longer what the heck the world's most important central bank is doing. We're going to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to tell you what we're going to do regarding interest rates, what our policy is going to be, our monetary policy. Well, in a period of low interest rates and low inflation, uh, that was okay. And in fact, uh, before this uh, huge increase in inflation and in, in, and in interest rates, the, they said we might even let interest might let inflation go longer, go higher for a bit longer because inflation's too low. Well, now we're at the other side of it. And they've made a big deal about their 2% target. And so people who pay attention to these things, like our listeners do, it, the fact that the PCE increase is relatively modest is a sign of optimism. The challenge is your, your eggs are still expensive and your gas is $4 a gallon. But the rate of increase, not the fact that the prices have gone up, the rate from where they were last month or six months ago has beginning to diminish. The Fed, in some observers' views, and I happen to agree with this, because of what they've done with, when, when Bernanke did it, they've, they've kind of put themselves in a corner. They've painted themselves in a corner because if, let's say, the PCE gets down to where it's consistently year over year 2.5%, and and Powell comes out and says, you know, girls and boys, 2.5% is pretty darn close to 2 and we're going to go ahead and reduce interest rates. Stock market takes off, the bond market takes off, and uh-oh, inflation goes back up. Mm. Now, the biggest thing the Fed has is its credibility. It's the most important central bank in the world, and everybody looks at what they say, and importantly, what they do, and that would be a real 
uh, problem for for their credibility. So that's why you see pundits saying that in spite of the rate of inflation diminishing, it's entirely plausible that the the phrase is higher for longer. Because interest rate policy has a lag on the economy, because uh, job market is so robust that the Fed, while they did, they paused this last time and won't meet again until December. This is good news, but it's too early. It's not great news. It's not earth-shaking news because the Fed wants to see wants to see more data. As you said earlier, uh, Mr. Kashkari uh, in Minneapolis, or maybe you didn't say it. You and I were talking before the broadcast. He's a Minneapolis Fed chair, mm-hmm. saying that. In his view, the economy could actually be stronger than we think it is. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Here is a text. Carl, a few weeks ago, a caller said inherited traditional IRAs have a required minimum distribution in addition to the 10-year withdrawal rule. I called and disagreed. But Kiplinger's agreed with the earlier caller. If the previous owner was already taking required minimum distributions, fascinating. You know, I I guess because I haven't run into that. Typically, when you have an inherited IRA, that means you're a non-spousal beneficiary. So your father passed away, and your mother got his IRA, and she passed away, and now you have the IRA. That's called a beneficiary IRA. And uh, in most cases, these people are under 73 years of age, so uh, it never occurred to me, perhaps to this person, that you would have to take a required minimum distribution. So this is really interesting and helpful. If it turns out uh, that uh, as Kiplinger said, if the previous owner was already taken RMDs, you have to as well. So that's good to know. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Kenny, we're down to about the last four minutes. Uh, I guess we just ought to share each other's remarkable intelligence and wisdom. Well, once again, <laughs> I will defer to you on that, Carl. Um, but I let me just say this. I always appreciate getting your monthly newsletter, and you had Thank some you. commentary in there this month about bonds. Yeah. There were a lot yeah. of expectations for the bond market to come back this year after such a disastrous 2022, yeah. and yet the Bloomberg yeah. U.S. Aggregate Bond Index – made up of treasury bills, government-backed securities, corporate bonds, is, as of now, losing about 3%. Yeah, I looked at the uh, iShares AG, AGG today, uh, for the year today through through yesterday, it was down 1.03. Now, that's the total return numbers. That includes the income. So the income might be 5%, so the whole thing could be down, you know, on a year-to-date basis, 6% of my hypothesis. Mm-hmm. You, This is like the stock market. You can't pick the top and you can't pick the bottom. But the math is such that if you bought bonds during this year and you look bond funds, because that's easier to consider, and you look at your statement for your 401k or your personal account, and the, will the bond fund have overall net asset value declined this year? And the answer is yes. But if you bought it this year when interest rates were 4.5% for the 10-year treasury, and two and and five percent for the two-year treasury, and you bought an intermediate and shorter-term bond fund, 
yeah, you have some modest loss. I'll give you an example. I was looking at a couple of funds that I use personally, and here's the difference. Here's an intermediate core bond fund. What does that mean? It means that it buys investment-grade bonds. They might be corporates. They might be security-backed. Uh, asset back, I mean, they might be government agencies. Its year-to-date return is a minus 0.51%. And then I looked at a short-term investment-grade bond fund, and believe it or not, its total return through yesterday is 452 And that's because of this so-called inverted yield curve where short rates are higher and long rates are lower. So what's happened, and you're right, is interest rates have continued to rise, that's put downward pressure on intermediate-term bonds, seven, eight-year bonds, six-year bonds. But it's been helpful to the short bond market because yields have gone up. So while I happen to agree, I think it's an excellent time, as I said in my monthly letter, it's an excellent time to consider bonds. And most people know I have not been a big bond fan. But I think now with these interest rates, even if you can't pick the top in the bond market. You just don't have a whole lot of price risk if bonds are are right for you. And what you're referring to, I always forget to talk about this. When I write that monthly letter, we take what's called the financial and investment planning component, and we post it on the News Radio KLBJ website, so people are more than welcome to look at that. So I stand by my view that as part of a diversified portfolio, for years I have been underweighted bonds, and I think you can add bonds to your 401k or whatever, if, if if it fits, as I said in earlier today's broadcast, if that return characteristic and, and, and long-term non-correlation, if you're in investment-grade bonds, non-correlated to stocks, if that kind of investment outlook fits your portfolio, then it's a good thing. It's a good thing to add. Okay, we're out of time. Actually, pretty interesting broadcast today, as always, with my friend Kenny. I want to thank Jack, who stepped in for Garrett. Jack did a great job. I thank Kenny, the pride of the state of Missouri. And remember, (laughs) next Saturday, (laughs) after the news at 4, be sure and tune in to Money Talk.